Well, welcome back to yet another edition, ladies and gentlemen, of Hayden's Entertainment Hour. And yes, today we're going to be talking about, uh, um, well, I don't have a co-host. That's uh, that's interesting. For the first time in a long time, I haven't had anybody come on to talk about movies. And I mean, there's been a lot of good ones that have come out. What's going on, people? Did you just forget about me? Everybody forget about my crippling in-depth podcast? What? What is that breathing? <laughs> Well, Fahrenheit, why do you look like you just crawled out of a war zone? I was trapped in a basement in Detroit. Oh no, not Michigan. I know. Like, I've been watching this one movie. I forget, I'm forgetting the name, but I was on Barbary Street. I was in the basement. I, what the fuck? There was like a freaky mom. It was, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Can I, can I be a... Can I be a host or guest? I mean, on your, uh, on your podcast? yeah, I guess. I mean, do you have any new movies that came out you want to talk about? Um, I mean, there was a lot these past months. Like, uh, like there was like the Fablemans is like that new Spielberg movie that's really good. Uh, I did want to talk about Pearl. Um, what about? I mean, can we do old movies like maybe like The Last Jedi? The I Last think? Jedi. Oh, you want to watch that piece of shit that was made by Ruin Johnson? Do you not know what that guy's done to the Star Wars community and Star Wars as a whole? He's turned uh, that franchise into a big woke joke, Fahrenheit. My goodness, Ruin Johnson, the guy that directed the pretentious-ass Looper and Knives Out? Let me tell you this much. I've seen that trailer for Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, and all I have to say is I haven't seen it, but I'm not spending a cent on a Ryan Johnson project. He ruined Star Wars with a single movie. Props to him for doing that, because I honestly don't know how someone can fuck up that badly. People like him should be burning in hell. He also ruined my fucking marriage, Fahrenheit. Fuck, I don't want to talk about this movie. And I thought Detroit was bad. But um, anyways. <laughs> All right, well, welcome back to Hayden's Entertainment Hour, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's been a very long time since I've done a podcast with a co-host. The last one that I did, obviously, was Halloween Kills with Brian, and that was clear back in October. Um, he goes by Danny now, as a lot of people know. I've been trying to clear that up with some people because they're like, well, why doesn't Brian come back on the podcast? Brian now goes by Danny. So I hope this is cleared up for some people. I know there was some confusion with the last one, but Danny is now the official title, um, and she is a great person. Now, Very Fahrenheit- happy for her. Yeah, very happy for her. So now um, I decided that me and Fahrenheit definitely need some movies to talk about. And we were going to actually talk about some of the ones that he listed off earlier. Like, for example, we were going to talk about Barbarian at one point. Then we had scheduling conflicts. We were going to talk about Pearl with Mia Goth and how great that movie is. Scheduling conflicts came up. We were probably going to talk about Black Panther 2 and then some scheduling conflicts came up. So I decided the next best thing was, well... We have to look towards Thanksgiving. That's usually when everybody has more time off. It's usually when everybody's in their last two weeks of college before exams. Everybody knows this is the time of year where you can sit down with somebody and talk about a movie that came out. And what better movie to talk about than one that was a much anticipated sequel than Knives Out 2 or Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery? Because we both were very much looking forward to this movie. When I first heard about the trailers, the cast behind it, and just the premise of it overall, I was hooked on this movie. And I know. It's made by Ryan Johnson. He's somebody that's controversial. Not everybody has to like him as a director. I completely understand that. But you cannot deny that this guy is not a great filmmaker. I mean, the way he frames and shoots these movies and just writes them intricately, it's really well done. Say what you will about a Star Wars movie. Say what you will about Looper or anything like that. 
But you can't deny these Knives Out movies are not fun because honestly, I love the first Knives Out. It was one of my favorite movies of 2019. So I very much was going to check this out simply because I figured it would be pretty good. Now, Fahrenheit, what are your thoughts on the original Knives Out, this movie, and just overall in general, your thoughts on Ryan Johnson as a director? Well, Ryan Johnson did make the best Breaking Bad episode fly. So Also true. <laughs> no, but I don't know. Something about Knives Out was really special because like it was also just made it during like a time where i don't know like it's ryan johnson's really good at like placing like making this like mystery tie into like current problems like um for instance uh knives out was made during a time when like trump was obviously being uh shat on for like putting children in cages and mm-hmm. such with like that whole debacle and glass onion apparently is no different like that's something that my friends kind of helped me like explain to me a little bit and we're gonna delve into it a little bit during this conversation yeah yeah no like the and the thing is too like i really like the use of the titles for both knives out and glass onion Mm -hmm. my biggest gripe with the title of glass onion is the fact that it has a knives out mystery as like on the bottom mm-hmm. like i don't think it needed that because knives out and glass onion are completely different mysteries like knives out you have like the family having all knives out at each other and then when it's actually over the inheritance right but then once the inheritance is given to marta all the knives are pointed all at her yep right and that's what i really like about that and with glass onion yeah like it's like a mystery that seems clear at first but then there's like more layers that kind of just surprise you i guess and like going more and more into this movie we're gonna see that how that plays out it's just ah. i think ryan johnson is a really satisfying director yeah yeah I was kind of mixed on Ryan Johnson when I first watched his movies because, believe it or not, the first movie that I started with was not The Last Jedi. It actually was Looper. I think Looper is actually kind of a really creative and a, like fun idea. I don't love the movie necessarily, but I really like what he was trying to do and also the messaging in the movie. Brick is actually really clever. Like That's a really clever movie in the way that it's framed in high school and everything like that. I kind of like that movie. Uh, the Last Jedi... I'm kind of 50-50 on it. I think it's a little overrated. I also think it's a little overhated. I wasn't the biggest fan of it when I came out, but I don't hate it like everybody else does. And, you know, it's Star Wars. Who cares at the end of the day? But Knives Out, my goodness, that, like you were talking about, was kind of like the perfect movie to come out at the perfect time because essentially it was kind of like a deconstruction of like the rich, white, elite, middle class. And I kind Mm -hmm. of love how the movie just kind of like steps all over that because, like you said, it's got not only social commentary on like the Trumpsters and everything like that, and it goes over how people have used like their white privilege to get by and stuff like that but it was also just a really good mystery about why this man or why this man ended up committing suicide and was framed basically and i i love everything about the first knives out because of just the way that it plays out and the mystery it kind of keeps you guessing sure you can probably guess who the twist bad guy of the movie is very easily but you doesn't really detract from the movie because of the way that it's explained and how well done it is with this one i went into it kind of going okay I think it's going to be more of the same. It's going to be another murder mystery, obviously. But we got something entirely different with an entirely different piece of commentary I was not expecting. And I think at the end of the day, that's why I debatably might like this movie more than the original. Do you know what? 
I kind of respect that. Like, I remember the first, because keep in mind, uh, for, for those at home, Hayden has seen it twice. I've seen it once. Uh, and from my first viewing, I was kind of just like debating on which one I like better. But I want to say that it's not really fair. Well, for me, at least, it's not really fair to compare because they both have different edges over each other mm -hmm. in my in my opinion uh yeah because especially like for instance like with knives out it has like no expectations right because like it's like a very fresh movie and then you have glass onion and then people are like we're expecting this to be like as good or even better than knives out so like there's a lot of expectations for that movie Mm -hmm. and uh there's other stuff that i think some movies do better and some that are like weaker than the other yeah but um yeah no like i'm very excited to talk about this because <laughs> i love both of these movies yeah uh, that is fair and we'll give our ratings later but yep. yeah all right so i'm just gonna give everybody a warning like straight up before we get into this um heavy spoilers ahead now, the reason that I'm saying this is because if you did not get a chance to catch it in theaters with its one-week theatrical run, which I'll just say, that was the dumbest fucking move ever made by Netflix. Very this movie much so. Yeah, it, it should have been in theaters longer than that. You could have had a monthly theatrical release if you wanted to. I don't care. It should have been in longer than a week because it came out during Thanksgiving, which is a holiday where most people are with their families, and so they don't have time on weekends to go see it. But at the same time, like if everybody that went off from college went back home and then came back to college and was like, oh, maybe I can go see Knives Out on like a day off, your only day offs to see it would have been literally Monday and Tuesday because at the time of us recording this Wednesday, it is no longer in theaters. I just think it was a butchered theatrical run. It was the third highest grossing movie at the box office over Thanksgiving. I think if you keep it in, it easily could make over 100 to $200 million. But hey, I'm not Netflix and slowly dying as a brand. So, um, But yeah, was... this movie... What's that? Oh, no, no, no. I was just... Because um, I actually work at a movie theater now. I'm really mm -hmm. proud about that, by the way. Um, but one thing that sucked was the fact that we actually didn't get that movie either. Like that—that that was like a corp. Like I even spoke to corporate about it too. Uh, they're like, "Yeah, because it's only going to be for a week. We don't really see a point in uh, showing it in theaters." And that's one of the reasons why I also think it sucks as well. Because um, I remember going to the theater that. Uh, glass onion was playing at i saw pinocchio there too and that's why i was like maybe for these netflix movies there's not gonna be too many people because i didn't pay like any online tickets for glass onion yeah i was lucky enough to get like a seat for two because i watched it with my sister that entire theater was packed it did not need like a week for <laughs> that I don't know that that thing that whole thing was dumb and then on top of that we need to wait until like December 23rd yeah like a whole month after like this explosive movie I don't yeah. know they're they're I read an article apparently they are debating on doing a re-release like in December when it um releases on Netflix mm -hmm. so they're planning so see it then I think but um in theaters on december 23rd but i don't know i just want to see this more 
I yeah. guess. I lucked out. Um, I got to see it with my family, actually, for the first time on a Sunday. We went and saw it in theaters, and I really loved it so much that I reached out to Danny and was like, hey, do you want to go see Knives Out, Glass Onion? It's really good. And Danny, of course, said yes. We both went and saw it. She came out loving it, too. So, like, this movie is, like, it's really sad because this is easily a movie that would make a lot of money, and both of the showings we were in were packed, obviously, with people. So, like, that's kind of the downside. Netflix has potential here to not only do a good streaming release but also theatrical release, but they can also make some money off it, too, because most of that profit goes back to Netflix because they're the ones that produce the movies. But I guess, I don't know, they just prefer the streaming numbers. I don't get it. But, um, yeah. yeah. So, anyways, um, like I was saying, Heavy spoilers ahead, because obviously for the people that didn't get to see it in theaters, you won't be able to see the movie until December 23rd on Netflix. So I'd bow out now if I was you. I would not stay for the rest of this podcast because this whole thing is going to be nothing but heavy spoilers going forward. So Fahrenheit, are you ready to delve into Knives Out, Glass Onion? Very much so. Let's peel these layers, baby. Let's peel the layers back. So give a quick plot summary. So. A rich billionaire tech genius, Miles Braun, that is played by Edward Norton, has decided to invite most of his closest friends out to his private Greek island for a relaxing weekend getaway. However, Detective Blanc is invited mysteriously to the island and is tasked with figuring out who possibly out of this friend group would want to murder the billionaire tech genius, Miles Braun. Now, the movie itself, I will say, the presentation of how it opens is quite similar to the first Knives Out. You have the mystery of a box. A simple box is being sent to these four individual people at the beginning of the movie. And I will introduce each of their characters and who they're played by. So the first character to get a box is Claire DeBella, played by Catherine Hahn. She's a politician that is running on a Green New Deal type of, uh, type of deal. She's trying to establish herself as a senator. She's running on a power plant deal secretly that is being funded by the benefactor, Miles Braun. Then we have Leslie Odom Jr., who plays Lionel Toussaint. He is a brilliant scientist that is creating all sorts of different technologies for Miles and has also been working on a brand new piece of renewable energy, which we'll talk about later. We have Kate Hudson that's playing Birdie J. She's a model. She's an actress. She's very ditzy. She does not care about COVID regulations, <laughs> clearly. Um, but there's a lot to love about this character because she's kind of the comedic relief in the movie. And then we have Duke Cody that is played by Dave Batista. He's essentially a Twitch streamer and influencer, a dude bro. He's one of those guys that harks on uh, rhino boner pills and stuff like that. He is also the comedy relief of this movie. But Dave Batista gets to have a lot of fun with this role, and I love it. There's also Jesua Henwick that plays Peg, which is the assistant to Birdie jay in the movie and she basically has to clean up all of birdie's mistakes and then there's madeline madeline klein that plays whiskey that is the girlfriend of dave batista's duke cody and she basically is just there to build her brand doesn't really care for him doesn't really love him in that way and that's what i kind of love about these characters all four of the main characters that i listed earlier all receive a box at the beginning of the movie from miles and they are tasked with figuring out how to open it and of course as the movie plays out we discover that hey this box has all sorts of little mini puzzles in it. They have to solve all of the mini puzzles that are inside the box. And what I love about this sequence is it kind of establishes our intelligence and strengths and weaknesses of the characters. For example, Leslie Odom Jr.'s Lionel is very quick to figure out the different ways to solve each of these puzzle pieces. Catherine Hahn is also very good at deciphering it based on previous clues and games that they played together. Kate Hudson simply figures it out because she understands simple games like tic-tac-toe and can yeah. also piece together things like, oh, it's silver, and I've wore silver before and stuff like that. And Dave Batista, he gets help from his ma, who he disrespects often, but don't worry, she sticks up for herself and lets him know, hey, you're not better than your mother, the one that raised you and lets you live here. And what I love about this sequence and them opening the boxes and everything is it just plays into the brilliant mystery of what's going to happen with this movie. You have this big, extravagant, flamboyant, just 
great billionaire tech genius, right? And obviously he is trying to show himself as a bit of a showman, but when you peel back the layers as the movie goes on, all of this theatrics that he does is kind of all for nothing and all basically a sham, but we'll get into that as the movie goes on. But what did you think of this opening sequence with the boxes? So, as I mentioned before, this is like a very different movie from Knives Out, but like Mm -hmm. at the same time, like, yeah, I really like how Ryan Johnson is able to make dyna- different dynamics, I guess. Because, like, in Knives Out, obviously, all the villains are, like, they're, like, a one big family, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that's, like, and they're all seeking out this one person. And that's why it's which one of these assholes are gonna, like, jump the gun. And then you have this one, right? Um, and they're all friends, so they're, like, and, like, it's always nice to see, like, them being on the same wave, on the same wavelength, right? Because, yeah, yeah, because it doesn't really seem like any of them would want to murder him yet. Mm -hmm. All we know is that, because, like, it does end with, like, a letter, they do find a letter, right? It's, like, Miles, like, is inviting them on his private island to solve his murder. Mm-hmm. And that's when the, that's when the uh, stakes are risen there. Because that's a very different type of mystery. And then you get a mysterious woman played by Janelle Monae. We're not going to say her name yet. But she smashes where all these people, where all these main friends are like opening this box like meticulously like having fun and they're all like together right yeah janelle monet they just smashed the box entirely that uh the and like that's when you start to think is she like the new main character like because obviously you have blanc who's more of a main character in this movie Mm -hmm. but like yeah, there's always, like, that stand-in main character that's always, like, the oddball out. So, and just seeing this character unfold is very interesting. We're going to get into that later. But yeah. keep that in mind, the fact that this one person that's out of the loop breaks the box and finds it all on her own in that way. But then we get something else, too. The introduction of Blanc playing Among Us with Fred. Go, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so Benoit Blanc, um, because the movie is set in 2020 during kind of the height of the pandemic in the summer, right? So everybody's locked away, obviously. The beginning of the movie, it's established like everybody's basically at home quarantining, unless you're birdie and you're throwing a big-ass party in the middle of the pandemic because they're quote-unquote all in your pot. <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. one thing that I love about this is, obviously, Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc, as we established in the first movie, he loves the hunt. He loves the cases. He loves hard-to-solve mysteries, right? Well, he can't do any of that because because obviously he's stuck at home due to the pandemic. So he's sitting in his bathtub, probably drinking some sort of fancy Chardonnay or something like that, and playing Among Us with all of his friends like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And as just trying... What's that? As one does. Yeah, as one does. Um, and obviously he's trying to just find a way to keep his brain at bay, because he talks about how his mind is like a race car, and it's fueled up, but it has nowhere to go, obviously. And he needs a sense of adventure, otherwise he'll go insane. 
But then a mysterious box is brought to his front door that has a letter inside of it, and it leads Ben Wellblock to go to this mysterious island in which uh, Ethan Hawke's Miles Braun has invited him. And we get yet again another introduction to these characters once again. Once again, we see Claire show up, and she is wearing a mask, and she's very cautious of everything around her. We have Lionel, who shows up wearing a mask also. He's very cautious and very confused as to why the great Ben Wellblock is there. We have Birdie, who wears a mask that's see-through. In fact, you can see her mouth. You can see her breathe through it because she, once again, has kind of proven she's very ditzy and does not care about anything that's going on around her. Then you have Mm. Duke show up with Whiskey on a motorcycle, shooting a gun in the air, and obviously he is very aloof to everything that is going on. He's not wearing a mask himself, neither is Whiskey, and they walk around just like the four best friends. What I love about the establishment is this, is how you can tell where these characters all stand. Obviously, Leslie Odom Jr. and Catherine Hahn's character, they care about the position they've been given. They understand the consequences of the things that you do. Whereas Duke and Bertie are a little bit more reckless. They've been given this fame, they don't really seem to care too much about what happens with it, and they kind of just build their own brands in different ways. The recklessness versus the more uptight and well-kept two characters in the movie. I love that dynamic because it really establishes how different these characters are from each other. And somehow they have a bond that we don't know about yet, which will go on as the movie explains itself more. No, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Well, I don't think I can add anything to that personally. But like, because, yeah, no, you kind of just were saying it verbatim. Because, yeah, no, it's always nice to see like these different characters like meet up in like this very odd circumstance i guess though i will say i'm forgetting the name of the the person that did wear that mask that um what's her name is it birdie yep birdie yeah no i really like how she's referencing like somebody that has actually worn these type of masks before as well yeah the see-through masks (laughs) yeah the see-through masks and like the I think it was like a politician from what I remember mm-hmm. or was that an actress. Yeah. She was just like, yeah, these masks are really effective, even though like it kind of just defeats the purpose of masks, I guess, yeah. during that time. And then we get like a very odd, like after the scene, after like, wait, no. Yeah. First, first we get a very weird, like cameo. From Ethan Hawke? Yep. I think. Yep. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he just... What does he shoot into their mouth? So that's the thing. Uh, there were some people that were saying, oh, it's a joke about the vaccine. There were some people that were saying, like, that's kind of the mysteriousness of Miles Braun is we're supposed to not really know a whole lot about him. And that's what it's setting up. Some people think it's just a joke gag. It's like, oh, something kind of like foreign got shot into their mouth. So we don't know what it is. Could it be like a pill that tracks them? Could it be something that like is being used to monitor their heart rates or something like that there were people that had all sorts of conspiracies but at the end of the day i just kind of like the joke behind it all ethan hawk says is you're good and ben wall block tries to press him a little bit like is it a disinfectant or something like that he's like you're good you can go on the boat now and like i kind of love the dryness of that because you just don't know the mystery and i'm sure it's just meant to be played off as a joke but very much so yeah we have another character show up into frame in this in janelle monet and it's Andy, one of the other members that was part of Miles Braun's little clique. When she shows up, you can tell there's very much a coldness in the air. Everybody's surprised. They try to play it off as like, oh, you know, ha ha ha, hi Andy, I'm glad you showed up and everything. But 
there's a mysteriousness behind the character in which Benoit Blanc asks um, Lionel, you know, why does everybody have a sense of coldness behind her? Well, we discover that Andy was actually one of the co-founders of this Alpha Corporation with Miles. And the two of them had went 50-50 on, the, on it together until she was kicked out of the company because of some selfish intent, quote unquote. And Miles Braun took over the entire company himself and basically social networked Andy out of it altogether. So what we establish here is that Andy would have the most motivation to want to murder Miles, obviously, for this murder mystery party. And one thing that I kind of love about this is Janelle Monet plays this character very mysteriously, and it works so, so well for what we discover about this character later. Because honestly, I didn't know what to think of her character at first. I was like, you know, she's just being kind of vague. She seems like she'd be the obvious killer choice. I hope it's not another another Chris Evans situation. But the way that it plays out, I absolutely love everything they did with this character in the setup. Very much so. Also, um, I didn't find this out recently. Janelle Monet does go by they them, but it's it's fine. Oh, does, oh okay. The... I wasn't sure. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Because no, I just really like their music, and mm-hmm. honestly, like outside, because like I've seen them in Hidden Figures and in Moonlight. Really mm-hmm. love those movies, but it's really nice to see her see them. See, I I also just. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it's fine, but like, yeah, no, I just I was really excited to see the performance in this movie mm-hmm. to see what they were gonna do with this character because, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, because I really love this character. I guess I'm not gonna say how yet. We'll discuss it as the mo- as the movie goes on. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So as they go towards the island, obviously, we discover that Edward Norton is sitting on the beach, serenading everybody, playing the guitar. The guitar happens to be the Blackbird guitar that Paul McCartney wrote the song Blackbird on that he's playing. But as they pull up with the boat, (laughs) there's a funny little joke that's kind of established that's brought back later where Lionel asks the captain of the ship, he's like, "Uh, what's the name of that dock or the island over there? And all the captain says is, piece of shit. And he goes, oh, so that must be the name of the island. It's a piece of shite, piece of shite. And you'll discover what the joke is later once it comes Mm -hmm. down. But anyways, they pull up to this floating dock. Birdie runs down to hug Miles. Miles is like, yep, this is a song that Paul McCartney wrote. And he just chucks it off to the side and it presumably breaks as it hits the ground, right? Everybody else comes running up. They're very cordial with him. Miles gets a little bit creepy around Dave Bautista's girlfriend, Whiskey. He starts being a little bit more lovey around her and everything like that. He sees Benoit Blanc and goes to shake his hand only for Andy to be right behind him and for him to be caught off guard. And we get a great shot in which I love Edward Norton's acting here because he goes into a lot of ranch here. He goes from confused to subtly angry to trying to play it off as cool in a really, really, really well-acted scene. Because if you pick up on some of like the dialect and the way he says dialogue and stuff, you can tell that there's something off about him and that he knows something about Andy more than what we know. What I also love about this introduction is Andy's coldness when uh, they're talking to... Uh, Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc. One thing that I love about it is they introduce themselves. They shake their hands. She tells him that he has a flat tire and everything. And Benoit Blanc is just trying to be very cordial. He's the uninvited guest on the island. He can tell. And he's just trying to learn everything that he can. But one thing I love about the setup for Edward Norton is that we basically just established he's kind of like an Elon Musk type. That's essentially what his character is. And he's just kind of a straight up asshole that abuses his money and power. And we'll discover that more as we talk about the movie playing out. If we're name dropping those, then yeah, it's very clear that uh, Dave Bautista is playing like a Andrew Tate's yeah, like Alex very Jones much. type character. We'll discuss how that plays into the narrative as well. 
but like that's just genius in and of itself one more thing i want to add to that is uh edward norton uh i've because like i as i was like watching more of his movies i've always been mixed on him because i know that he's like kind of an asshole irl oh yeah he's like what that's what birdman taught me as well like he's sort of just playing himself yeah but like i don't know like i'm always it's either i love him or hate him and like during this movie i was sort of just like hmm am i gonna like this dude for this and i do i can't say how yet but no i do think that he's like one of the other best parts of this movie yeah uh, as they're walking around this island, obviously, he's talking to them about how the island came to be. He talks about the Glass Onion, which is named after the local bar that all of the friends were at before. There's this random character that walks around that goes by the name of Daryl, and he just goes, ignore me, I'm not part of this experience. And basically, the explanation is he's going through some stuff, so he walks around the island. Now, one thing that I love about this is it's Noah Sagan, who, if you guys remember, was a character in the first Knives Out, and he's reoccurring here as a different character. I think that's actually kind of funny and clever. I don't know if he'll be like... Like a reoccurring character in the series but i just found that funny like i don't know why but just this random character that walks around and lives on the island and is a part of the experience that's great anyway who does so, he play what's that Wait, who, who does he play in those so out? he was lakeith stanfield's deputy in the first one. Oh, okay yeah he was Wait, he was the him? one that uh he recorded uh the confession of chris evans at the ending and everything and he kind of knew everything about the different celebrities in that family he has way more hair here. Yeah, <laughs> kind of plays like a hippie here, and I kind of love that. I and also, yeah, obviously, um, the one thing that uh, Glass Onion doesn't have on Knives Out is the fact that it has like Keith Sandfield miss him very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why why he isn't he on this movie? Outside of, like the fact that he might have been filming like Atlanta. He, might, he probably was. There might have been scheduling conflicts, but Perhaps. I think the idea also is that basically Blanc is supposed to interact with different characters as this franchise goes on, which I kind of prefer because like it keeps every mystery like fresh and interesting rather than reoccurring characters over time. And I think that's what Ryan Johnson's really good that's at fair. is he can just really add on to the universe. Okay. No, I understand that then. No, yeah. that was that's bizarre though. It is a little bizarre. I don't know if him and Noah Sagan are just really good friends and it's like a joke between the two of them, but I just thought that was funny that he reoccurred as like a side character in the movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, but anyways, so Edward Norton then starts talking about the island itself and the glass onion, and there's this random dong that goes off that scares everybody, and he's like, oh yeah, that's just the hourly dong, you know. He starts walking around telling them about how these uh, chakras that they're associated with will lead them to their rooms with these biosphere bands, and then Edward Norton decides to pull aside Benoit Block and talk to him because he's like, hey, I didn't invite you to the island, buddy. I don't know why you're here, and Benoit goes, well, I got an invite. You know, it came in a box. You sent it my way, and he's like, I never sent you any kind of box and this is where the great Benoit Blanc starts to turn his detective brain on and goes well how many boxes were made and Edward Norton says only five of them he's like well then it must be possible that somebody ended up resealing the box with the letter and invitation inside it and sent it to me of course this is the thing that causes him to go well 
You know, this feels like it's a joke from one of the members of my gang. You know, we're having a murder mystery party. Let's invite the great Benwell Blanc. And of course, Blanc is embarrassed. He's like, well, I'm sorry. I don't want to interfere with anything. And everywhere Norton goes, no, it's great. You know, it plays into the joke. I kind of love it here. I'll invite you to stay on the island. So Benwell Blanc is now in with the rest of the gang on this island, even though we can tell deep down that Benwell Blanc knows more than something that meets the eye. And one thing that I kind of love about this is we also established that Edward Norton is very much full of himself. He has an actual glass onion that has a star in it in which you can see deep into this crystal thing. His baby blue Porsche car is literally set up on the top roof of the building simply because it can't be driven anywhere on the island. Everything is very reflective. It's open. He's going for this whole, like, you know, spiritual kind of, like, I love the island and nature and everything like that. But it's all kind of built as one big ego piece, much like the character that he's based on in Elon Musk. Very much so. Because, like, there's also a little bit more to that, too, because and we'll discuss it later, but apparently they have all been, like, one of the reasons why they have been successful is because of this little bar called Gla- the Glass Onion. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of a nostalgia thing, too, but we'll discuss that in a bit. Yeah. But, yeah. So- So after Benoit Blanc is officially uh, allowed to come into the island, everybody is at the pool because they're going to start off the day at a pool party. Everybody comes up in their various swimsuits and stuff like that. Benoit Blanc shows up in his immaculate drip. I love Craig's costuming in this scene. I love everything about it because... If a lot of people don't know, um, Daniel Craig's character of Benoit Blanc has been confirmed by Ryan Johnson to be gay within the universe, right? And you can very much tell in some of the way that he performs in this movie and some of the ways that he dresses and stuff. Um, Benoit Blanc is kind of this great gay character for the Knives Out universe. And I love how Craig really respects this character and puts his heart and soul into it because ever since he's been freed from the chains of James Bond, he is just having so much fun acting again. You can tell he loves to act again. And I think that's something that I appreciate about this movie is Craig gets to finally be himself a little bit. Uh, I've yet to see the Daniel Craig Bond uh, movies. Mm Mm-hmm. But I've heard he's pretty fruity in those. Yeah, he is. But <laughs> like in Skyfall Bond... specifically. <laughs> yeah, Bond is a character you have to constantly stay in shape for. You have to be very gentleman-esque. You have to put your body through a lot for the action sequences and stuff. And over time, it took a toll on Craig, obviously, which is why in this movie, it looks like he's toned down a whole lot more. He's finally able to just be his natural self because, you know, he had to be Mr. Muscular for James Bond. And now that he doesn't have to do that, it looks like he's going back to the Daniel Craig that did a lot of indie films and introspective and fruity roles over time. I want to see those movies, actually. Yeah, some some of them are very good and very underrated. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, no, I want to say he's a lot more composed in Knives Out. Yes, very Not to say that he's, like, he's a little bit pretty in the first one. But, like, not too too much, you know? But, like, I don't know. And also, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, when he didn't get his box, like, like, there was, like, a voice calling out for him. I'm pretty sure that was his husband. Right, like yeah, like, which I don't want to give away that cameo yet. I want to, I want to save that for when we get to it. But yeah, no, definitely, course, course. probably of course. Well, we'll we'll save who the mystery husband is. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Um, so we established a couple things during this pool scene. So one, there's a miniature replica of the baby blue that sits up on the building, and Dave Batista goes to say, "Yeah, do you remember when?" Uh, 
uh, do you remember when you almost pancaked me with your car, Miles? And he goes to say outside of this person's house. And then, of course, Miles cuts him off and says, Anderson Cooper's party. Yeah, I remember that. We also find out that Birdie kind of resents uh, Miles a little bit because she goes, you know, he used to be this plaything in my hand. I used to be the one that controlled him. And now it's kind of the opposite thing. And I wish things could go back to the way that it was. We discovered that it looks like Lionel and Claire about, are talking about something in secret on the other side of the pool. And Dave Batista is just swimming around. He has a gun holster that he just takes out and shoots in the air for some reason. But the biggest thing in this scene is that Andy is just mysteriously moving around everybody. Then we get another great scene that establishes, you know, why this group of friends came together, how they came to be. And Edward Norton starts to go into the story of how they all came together. He talks about how each one of them are disruptors. There's somebody that goes against the mold of society, tries to break the mold, tries to be different, you know, kind of show society as, as something that they don't want to admit or be a part of. But it's something that everybody thinks about that's always on their mind. So, for example, he took Birdie that essentially was a nobody before she became a model and was able to use her power and influence to manufacture a bunch of clothing lines and brands and stuff like that. But there is kind of an underlying consequence to her doing all this. Then there's Lionel, who was just a substitute teacher who got raised up to become a brilliant scientist and work on a lot of these alpha scientific products. Then there was Catherine Hans Claire Devella. She was just basically a soccer mom, but now she's throwing the grenades of politics at people and she is independent and does her own thing. And then there's Dave Batista, who basically was just a meathead who was a nerdy video gamer. And then he became a number one Twitch streamer. He became somebody that advocated for, like I said, the, Ron uh, the rhino boner pills and stuff like that. And basically all four of them have become super successful because they became disruptors that went against societal norms. And Edward Norton explains that this is a good thing, even though you can tell deep down that Detective Blanc does not agree with anything that is going on here. Mm -hmm. Classic Dave Bautista W. Yeah, classic Dave Batista W. But one thing that I also love about the scene in general is Andy then comes in and basically gives Edward Norton his lunch, talking about how all of these disruptors took something away from her and everything like that, and talks constantly about how Miles basically is lying through the skin of his teeth and about how if he truly knew what disruption was, he would understand it just makes everybody look like an asshole that's doing it and how it's actually more harmful to the Alpha brand and everything. But, of course, she just walks out of frame because she knows there's no changing Miles' mind. And clearly... Claire tries to go after her to say something as, as well as Dave Batista, but it looks like nothing of value is really brought from this conversation because they're all going back and forth with each other. One thing that's established also a little bit here is you can tell that Detective Blanc is putting on his detective cap here because he notices a couple things when he walks into frame. One, Miles has a fax machine that faxes all of his like messages and receipts all across the world because he does not believe in using a cell phone. Two, there is a magazine cover that has Birdie J and this diamond, this red diamond that she wore in her first ever photo shoot. Also, we discover here at the same time, too, that all these characters have very distinct personalities in different ways that they all kind of play off of each other and their dynamics. He can tell that some of them have alliances with each other. He can tell some of the group members do not like certain members of the group. And everything that I love about this is that we'd establish that these characters not only are for each other with this group in unison, but they're also very different in the way that they want to play out their lives and alliances with each other. Very much so. I mean, when do we learn that... Uh, I'm I'm forgetting his name, but like <laughs> I called him Dave Batista because like I forgot his character name. What was his it? name? Is Duke? Duke. Fuck, that's the line. Duke doesn't dance with pineapple. Yeah, Duke don't we... dance with pineapple. When did we learn that yet? 
I'm pretty well, sure we no, we, we didn't talk about that line. So when they get the disinfectant or disinfectant before they go on the boat, Duke goes, there's no pi- pineapple in that, right? Because the Duke don't dance with pineapple. And I think that's a great line. But yeah, I get what you're getting at here. Like characters like Dave Batista very much are kind of coming into their own and you discover more about them as the scene plays out. Like, for example, we start to discover that these characters all have sort of different intentions that they'd like to bring up with Mile. For example, Peg, who is the assistant to Birdie J, is like, hey, can you really not encourage her to say the statement? Because if she goes with this statement about, you know, sweatshops or something like that, it's going to make me look like a terrible person. I'm probably going to get fired. She's going to lose her career and stuff. And Miles goes, well, I can't help you with that. Then we also discovered that Whiskey has been sleeping around with Miles, obviously, and Duke is very mad about this because he grips his fingers and everything like that. And then there are the other characters in the movie, which we'll get into kind of their resentment with Miles a little bit. But this all basically leads up to a gigantic dinner scene with all of them. And it's this very extravagant dinner where there's all of these different sculptures around and stuff, and it's this big, larger-than-life mansion. And Miles has made all of these different cocktails for everybody in the room. He hands out all of the cocktails that he knows each of the group members really like. He goes to the dinner where he talks about this murder mystery party that's going to happen. But one thing we also establish here about Miles is that he has a very, very famous work of art that is in his possession. The Mona Lisa. France was short on money. He's a billionaire. He wanted to take a loan out and he wanted to be able to own something that he could be in the same breath as the Mona Lisa, which is protected by this soundproof and basically fireproof glass case that slides up and down based on just the simple noise of something like a phone notification. And he constantly goes on about how the eyes really stare into the soul. The eyes really mean something. And one thing that I love about this scene is just the way that it's shot in frame, because as Miles Braun is giving this monologue about the mysteriousness of people's eyes and how you can't tell, like, are the eyes trying to say something? Are they hiding something? Maybe there's more than meets the eye. It slowly frames in on Andy. And that's what I really love about the scene is what it establishes with this metaphor in Andy. Wait a minute. There's. I don't know if you talked about the scene because where I think we skipped a scene, I think. Which one's Didn't... that? Wasn't there a scene where like, uh, or Miles, he was like explaining his own, his whole like thing, his whole backstory about how his company was right, it was rising. And then Andy comes in, who, who like gives um, Birdie's assistant her bottle, and then she goes off about how all of them are like shitheads. Yeah, well, that Basically. was the scene I was talking about earlier when I said. Or, oh, okay, my bad. Yeah, my Andy bad. comes into frame and hands Miles his lunch, basically. Right. No, but like that's like um. That was before we got to be introduced by the uh, the Mona Lisa, basically, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. it was before that. Gotcha, gotcha. Because, yeah, no, I speaking about the Mona Lisa, I really like how Ryan Johnson uses, like, paintings as, like, I, I, I want to say, like, a, like, somebody that watches us, I guess. I get he really appreciates it, appreciates it, because um, in Knives Out, you get like this painting of um of the murder victim right the, yeah is it harman um no his name is uh oh i i think christopher Fulmer, but i should know the name of the character because i uh is it harlan or Har- harlan, or harlan harlan that's harlan name. yep yep no yeah because like um fun fact about that movie um yeah i i even told bacon about this harlan harlan's painting in that movie is actually like vfx Mm -hmm. 
a little bit because like he tends to like smile and not smile like throughout the entire movie like just due to like the beats of of like different parts of the story beats basically just him just watching his family as they all unfold this very fucked up mystery right and then yeah. in this one like miles points out that um one thing that he really likes about this painting is the fact that it can smile and not smile like at different times so he sort of just, that's like the one thing that stuck out to me mm-hmm. i get uh and then yeah after that we got this really meticulous uh murder mystery that somebody has to solve <laughs> yeah so miles braun then starts talking about the murder mystery the reason that all of them are there he said he wanted this relaxing getaway to be just for them to you know all have uh all have basically one last normal week of uh re- normalcy before they all go off and have to do the various tasks that miles has assigned for them and he goes on about how basically he will be murdered quote unquote and when he is dead he cannot say anything he will hang out with them he will not give them any clues and he just wants to simply see if they can put their brains together and figure out who would want to murder miles braun well one thing that i love about the scene is craig basically asks like the obvious questions he's like well do we win a prize or something and miles is like why would you want a prize? He's like, well, no, I'm not saying there has to be. It's just like, you know, isn't there something that we win, like an iPad or something like that? And Lyle's like, okay, yeah, whoever wins gets an iPad. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not saying we don't need an iPad. It's just, you know, some type of incentive would be nice. And then, of course, Miles is like, well, you know, I guess it's early and I didn't really want to do the murder mystery until, like, I had something dramatic planned. But, you know, we can start it early. And then Detective Blonde ends up solving the mystery within literally three seconds. He goes, <laughs> Birdie was the murderer. And there are all of these intricate clues, such as the crossbow that is used on the statue that would shoot the dummy arrow is a type of bird crossbow. He goes on about how, like, there's a certain magazine, like I was talking about earlier, that was established that had the red diamond on it that was on her forehead. There is a talk about where birdie's bedroom is and how it relates to a bird basically all of the clues for this murder lead to birdie and there is a locket around miles braun's neck and he's like now mr braun would you please open that and it has the ren diamond inside which of course does confirm that birdie was the murderer behind this mystery and then a fake dummy arrow shirts into miles braun and fake blood bags shoot out onto his uh dining room table and stuff like that and of course you know blanc sits back and chuckles about it because he's like oh it's really funny it's really childish and everything like that and this entire scene just basically establishes not only Craig's comedic chops, but just like how brilliant of a detective uh, Detective Blanc really is. Very much. But he's no Batman, though. No, he's no Batman. <laughs> but like, I don't know. Like, that. I don't know. I really just like how quickly he was able to solve that one murder. Because that, that's yeah. the only that's the only murder that happens, really. It's just a fake one. Don't worry, guys. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it doesn't well, get anyways, very, um, it doesn't get really stressful during the third act at all. Not in an IMAX no, theater, no, no less. Uh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So after the scene, obviously Blanc starts talking to Miles as he angrily walks up to his office at the top of the glass. And he's like, "Wow, that felt great. That was just a great mystery. You know, I got to. It felt like the perfect bite. My chef always goes on about how like we're trying to craft this perfect bite, and an iPad is thrown at Detective Blanc. Obviously, is the reward for winning. And he goes." I can tell you're angry about something. I get it. And he's like, yeah, you know, I hired somebody. I forget who he named drops, but it's a really good famous mystery writer. And he's like, oh, yeah, she is quite good. And he's like, yeah, she's very fucking expensive and everything like that. And what I love about it is we just see Miles sit there, you know, defeated. But Detective Blanc goes, well, I'm going to be honest. I ruined your game for you because looking at the circumstances, somebody here definitely wants you dead because it looks like you're in a scenario where you're likely to die because you invited 
um, I think he says seven people, quote unquote. I don't know if that's true or not. He says, but you invited a bunch of people that all have real uh, life reasons to kill you. It's like putting a gun on the table and shutting off the lights. One thing that I love about that line is it establishes not only like A, Miles is kind of somewhat an idiot for inviting all these people, but also B, it is kind of the perfect place and perfect scenario for him to possibly get assassinated. And of course, this leads Miles to be on edge a little bit. He's like, yeah, I see where you're coming from and all this, but they're my friends. They would never turn on me or anything anything like that. And after this is established, then Detective Blanc notices the napkin, which is this famous napkin that him and Andy created, but Miles takes credit for. He goes, yep, that's the napkin where I drew up the original idea for the Alpha Corporation, you know? And Andy was somebody that was great, honest, would give me a lot of feedback, but her ambitions outgrew mine, and she started to see past the company, and that's why I had to take over and kick her out, basically. And he talks about how this was a tough decision to make, but ultimately, in the end, it was what made his brand really strong. And what I like about this scene is one it does establish him as more of an asshole obviously in the way that he had all of this planned out but also at the same time we see detective blanc starts to pick up on subtle little hints that maybe there's something off about miles braun very much so and then do you think i can like kind of tell like what i remember from yeah. what happens next because yeah. i'll just kind of describe like how i was feeling too i because he was just going downstairs uh and then andy actually yeah andy she goes off on them right like because i want she wants to know the truth like because apparently she's very mad about something and then duke comes along and is like i'll be the asshole and tell you why you're like not in our friend group anymore because we're kind of just better than you mm-hmm. like something along those lines but like after that like miles and uh blanc they go downstairs and I'm just because like there's this eeriness, right? It's like I was expecting Miles Braun to be murdered at some point, right? But like, yeah. like because like again, it's as you said, there's like a gun on the table, and it can go off at any point, right? Yeah. And I was just like, what the fuck? Is, is like something gonna happen? Because like I even seen like the politician run into Duke. Like, because, like, it wasn't just uh, Andy that bumped into her, to Duke, right? But it was also yeah. the politician at some point. I'm like, does she have the gun? Well, like, that, that's, like, my thought process. Like, is there actually going to be, like, a clear-cut murderer in this friend group? Because I don't think it's Andy anymore. I literally think it's one of these shitheads. Yeah. And that's why I was, like, scared for my life during this turn of events and then out of nowhere i think this is what happens next duke dies <laughs> like he drank something and i guess his drink was poisoned and then he fell on the floor and he fucking choked to death and died like th- that i don't know that was so bizarre to me i guess because like it just establishes yeah, no, this is a very different murder mystery because there are actual lives at stake. And mm-hmm. we don't know why this murderer is murdering people. So, yeah, no, take it away. Yeah. So Duke obviously dies, and the entire scene then, of course, plays out differently because 
the Mona Lisa painting or the little glass protecting thing has been going up and down because of a notification alert that is coming from Duke's phone. Because we figured out that Duke has a bunch of Google alerts on his phone for all of his friends and also for random things like movies. And there's a great line where <laughs> Lionel goes, you have a Google alert for movies? He goes, I like movies. Don't hate. Yeah. And I was just sat there and was like, hey, I have I have an alert for when new movies come out. I, re- I relate with you, Dave Batista. I love mm. cin- Yes. No, I very... Um, mm. Yeah. I forgot about that line. My bad. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> anyway, anyway so Dave Batista is dead and everybody's freaking out. They're like, well, how, how did this happen? How did this happen? And meanwhile, Minus, Miles Braun is sitting off in the distance and he is shell-shocked and everything. So Detective Blanc, being a good detective, is like, well, we have to radio in the police to come. Why don't you go to the radio, Lionel, and see what you can do? So Lionel goes to the radio as Detective Blanc is searching around for Duke's phone, which has fallen eerily silent in this situation. But Miles then notices something that you know, the first time you don't really pick up on it, but the second time after I watched it, I did. Miles points and goes, wait a second. He picked up my glass. That has my name on it. That means, and he realizes slowly that maybe one of the shitheads tried to murder him because he grabs Detective Blanc and moves him in front of him and is basically using him as a human shield and is like, I'll pay you $1 billion to tell me which one of them did it. And of course, the four friends all try to play it off. It's like, Miles, we'd never do anything like this. But it starts to create this uneasiness and this tension between the group members and Miles. Lionel comes back from the radio and is like, well, guess what? The boats can't come because the dock is set to low tide and his Banksy is a, quote, piece of shit because the caption at the beginning that said piece of shite no he meant that the the banksy that the boats have to come up in is a piece of shit <laughs> and i think that's, that's a great piece there. of delivery and a great joke that plays out but as miles braun is trying to hide from these people and of course detective blanc is trying to keep the peace he starts freaking out more because he goes oh no it's 10 o'clock it's 10 o'clock i i thought it would be funny we'd have drinks and i'd say something dramatic and then the lights and power all cut out of the entire uh, building. And of course, Birdie screams dramatically and Detective Blanc turns on a flashlight and he's trying to keep everybody in the building. But then chaos ensues. Miles runs off. Everybody starts running off to hide and everything. They're looking around for Andy because she disappeared and Duke's gun is also missing. So they think that Andy has possibly taken the gun. And this entire scene is literally lit by a lighthouse light that goes around in a circle. And I love everything about the lighting of this scene because it establishes an uneasiness and establishes tension. Characters will sink into the darkness of the frame and you'll cut to Detective Blanc running around this flashlight trying to figure things out. Like, for example, he walks into the kitchen to look for him and notices that a kitchen knife has been taken and he goes, oh, sweet Lord, help us. Because he knows that craziness is about to ensue with these scenes. And as it plays out, Detective Blanc goes around, he finds Andy, he has a line about how, like, we need to look in the last place that we haven't looked and you're the only one that can get us this piece of information and then a phantom gunshot is shot and andy is presumably shot and killed detective blanc is very much torn up about it he gathers everybody back inside after the lights come back on and this is where detective blanc starts to talk about how there's one piece of this mystery that makes sense and that there's one person to blame for the entire thing only for it to fade to black and for us to cut back to earlier in the movie where we're right outside of detective blanc's household now, before I get into this great reveal, Fahrenheit, is there anything you want to comment about the tension of the murder mystery scene that played out? Again, I was like near on the verge of tears, <laughs> like there during the entire thing because like, I didn't. Because mm. first of all, this is like my first like knives out, quote unquote, like story that I've yeah. seen in a theater. So, like that, maybe that's one of the reasons why I think. One again, so like going back to like one of the edges that this movie has over the other, yeah, 
I want to say that the tension is more contained here. Like, the fact that they're all trapped on this island. Like, it's one of the... Like, um, have you seen the menu yet, Bacon? Yep, I've seen the menu. That's a great movie. Yeah, like, one of the reasons why both of those movies work is because they are trapped. Right? They're trapped on this island. Nobody else... Like, albeit they are different movies. Yeah. Right? Like, one's, like, a really fucked up... Like... Yeah, Gordon Ramsay's gonna kill you versus, like... Basically. A, a, a murder mystery, obviously. But, I don't know, I really like that, like, device that they use. And, yeah, no, it's, as you said, um, the lighting during that entire scene, too, was phenomenal. I... I like, I remember somebody was saying that um, they didn't really like the, um, like, the color grading. Mm-hmm. I personally do. Yeah, like, I do, too. Like, I think this is also just, like, a lot more colorful as well. And I want to say that this is, like, more subtly, like, well, no, actually. Like, because, like, both of them, both Knives Out and Glass Onion very much are inspired by, like, Clue. Which I find super funny because, like, I really love the movie Clue and just, like, the concept of the game. But I don't know, like, if they're able to, like, make that that basis and then intensify it i i respect ryan johnson for that and then yeah onto this very this twist i guess the very first twist of this glass onion that we need to take off yep so um, So, um like i said somebody shows up to the door to detective blanc's apartment holding one of the boxes obviously that everybody else at the beginning of the movie got and the person that answers the door, this great cameo that we get, it's Hugh Grant, ladies and gentlemen. Hugh Grant. He turns yeah. out he is the, he is the uh, lover of Detective Blanc, and he talks to this person, and this person comes in, and the reveal that we get, and honestly, I love everything about this reveal because you don't see it coming from a mile away. I mean, if you rewatch the movie, it just makes kind of the twist even better, I mean, in retrospect. But, like, the twist is that it turns out that Andy, the character that was very mysterious, actually is dead. She ended up committing suicide, and this is her sister, Helen, that is trying to figure out, you know, how did this actually happen? Because she knows that her sister would not commit suicide. This would not be something that happens to her and everything like that. She thinks that foul play has been suspected and that it has something to do with these four shitheads that all work under Miles. Because they all have a reason to protect Miles because they're holding on to his quote-unquote golden titties. Now, here's the thing that I love about this setup and establishment. One... One thing that I love about Helen is you can tell she's a very fierce character. She's somebody that is not afraid to stand up for family, to stand up for the little guy and everything like that. She wants to get to the truth and the whole truth, which truth is something that we discover a lot throughout this movie is not always the best thing you're going to find in these characters. But she is the only character besides Detective Blanc that stays truthful throughout the entire movie. Not only that, but one thing that I love about the establishment of this scene is that as a character, she has studied her sister, her mannerisms and everything. She talks about how, like, I know my sister. She's from the South. She's got a Southern accent and everything like that. But we used to make fun of the rich people and everything like that. We created a voice that was called Rich Bitch and everything. And she gives an example of it by speaking in it and goes, one thing you know, my sister goes off to the big city with Miles Braun and she starts talking in this Rich Bitch voice. And, like, I'm like, that's not you, girl. I know you're from the South and everything like that. And what I love about this is we establish the fact that the two of them are very similar characters 
characters. They're both Southerners. They're very uptight. They stand up for the little guy, but they can also put on a fa- uh, fake accent and turn into a different person when they need to be. And I love everything about that because it establishes the twist that we'll get into after I reveal the rest of this twist um, that goes on later. Now, one thing that I love about this too is that she discovers that Andy had sent out one last email before she died that was going to burn down the entire empire of Miles Braun and his billionaire tech Alpha Corporation because it turns out that in the envelope she was going to mail, it actually had the original napkin that Andy designed that actually had the Alpha Corporation design on it. Now, here's one thing that I love about this. One, we discover that one, Miles Braun is basically a fraud and everything about his empire has been one uh, one gigantic lie. But two, it turns out that Andy was actually the smart glue that kept everybody together. Her decisions is what benefited everything else, but Miles' ambitions out and grew hers and the two of them obviously split. And it's what caused Miles and his lawyer's team and the contract to kick Andy out of the company entirely. Andy was thrown basically as like the black sheep away from the rest of the group. All the group members lied that Miles was the original creators to protect their skin and their brands and everything like that that and it's what led andy to have some resentment towards them and try to burn down the entire thing i love all this motivation i love this character of helen i love everything about it and i love how detective blunt's conclusion is well i know that you want to hire me to solve this case and i would love to but if i go as a detective that's talking about a murder of a uh, member of this group everybody will shut up like a clam nobody will want to answer uh, answer to me because they'll know about the death and they'll know who's behind it but if you go disguised as your sister they're more inclined to you know open up more about it me more emotional with stuff and i'll be able to snoop and get actual clues to help you solve this case so it's established that helen will go undercover as andy to the island and we'll decide to play it out and figure out from the uh, my goodness i am trying to speak here and i feel like i've been speaking the whole podcast so i apologize if i'm a little out of it we're an exam week it's terrible but andy will mm-hmm. go to the or helen will go to the island disguised as andy because the person that murdered andy will be the one to act all mysterious or cold when she shows up and that will allow them to discover you know who's been behind this entire murder mystery itself i Whew. think because like no, by the way applause wait can you hear this I'm just applauding. Yeah, like, I can hear it. Bob. Yeah. <laughs> really good, by the way. Thanks. I, I don't know. Like, like the fact that she, like, dies, and then we get established that it's actually Helen, mm-hmm. who already has, like, a dead sister, and have, just with that knowledge, I was, like, literally on the verge of tears, I think. Because I was like, this is so fucked up. Like, But, like, at the same time, again, Glass Onion, the title, it makes a lot of sense. Like, it, it's so clear. Like, you think that the story's so clear. Mm-hmm. But there's different layers to be peeled, I guess. Much like an onion. Very much like an onion. Like, and that's what I really like about this. Like, it's a very clear-cut movie, but the twists very much carry this movie for me uh and yeah no again uh it's like i didn't want to spoil who janelle monet was playing because she's essentially playing like two or three characters well two actually yeah she's they're playing like andy and they're playing helen and like it's so good and then you have helen acting as andy she's really good in this i like i'm kind of i was kind of debating on it because i really like how marta is like pinocchio yeah basically how she's uh how she pukes whenever she lies 
So that's her gimmick. But then with Andy, or in this case, Helen, she's just very much like she wants to go towards the truth. But I want to say uh, Gentleman's range in this, I kind of prefer, I think. Not not to say that Marta is like worse. I just prefer one over the other. I no, guess. that's fair. That's fair. But man, that was like a very big reveal that only gets better over time. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's more twists that kind of like raise the stakes in very unexpected ways. I'll I'll let you continue. Yeah. So, anyways, um, obviously Helen goes undercover as Andy, and we discuss like we established that the rest of the group obviously is very cold towards her. When she gets on the boat with all of them, she's like, uh, the group members go like, you shouldn't be here and everything like that. But the thing that Detective Block and Andy are trying to figure out is what motivations would one of these shitheads have to want to try to murder Miles Braun or want to try and murder Andy, right? So one thing that we discover, obviously, is that there are a couple of different characters that have different reasons to want to protect Miles Braun. One, we find out that Claire and Lionel have both signed off on power plants for this Clear product. Now, I didn't talk about Clear earlier. Let me tell you what Clear is. So, Elon Musk, Miles Braun, basically, is trying to create a renewable energy source that is basically 100% pure hydrogen that will power households. It will do away with gas and dangerous fuels and stuff like that. But the only consequence is if this thing gets exposed to the wrong chemicals or too much methane gas or anything, it will basically turn people's houses into the Hindenburg, which is why Lionel and Claire are not very big on the fact that Miles is going to reveal this product when it's not even out of the testing stages yet. But Miles' entire house is being basically fueled on it, which is why he's like, oh, well, it can be fueled in everybody's house. But, you know, that's very reckless. You need to test it on many different things. You need to make sure the uh, the product is complete. But obviously, Miles doesn't care. His ego is too big to obviously see past those noticeable flaws but like i was said here's some motivations obviously for why claire and lionel need to try and keep miles's golden titties one they both signed off on this flower plant obviously and they need a reason to keep this going because miles will not only back claire's campaign to make sure that he wins but he will also back lionel as a brilliant scientist and get him more awards if he's able to go forward with this clear product Another thing that we discover, too, is that Dave Batiste's Twitch channel, he's been banned from. He's been relying on a YouTube channel that is slowly dying in viewers. And he would like to be a part of the Alpha News Corporation because he thinks it would be able to help him build his brand and save him. But Miles, while he's sleeping with whiskey, says, look, I just don't think you realize, like, I can't keep the rhino boner pill guy around. He's just too much of a danger towards the brand. He's a loyal friend and everything, but to put him on Alpha News, that's not a good idea. So that gives Dave Batista motivation to not only be the killer somewhat, but also at the same time to also be suspected as somebody that will want to protect Miles to uh, to possibly get on Alpha News. The last piece of motivation, and one that I kind of like, is Birdie's. Birdie has signed off on a sweatshop in Bangladesh where her sweatpants are being manufactured. Birdie is not smart enough to realize that sweatshops are actually terrible things and not the place where they make sweatpants. So she's going to very dumbly sign on to the statement and save her skin because Miles will reward her for doing this, even though it's a controversial thing to have sweatshops make her product. Now, all these characters have motivations, like I said, to protect Miles. But at the end of the day, they also have reasons to hate Miles. One, Claire and Lionel don't like the fact that Claire is being launched without being out of the testing stages. Two, uh, Edward Norton looks down on Dave Bautista and only sees him as a bumbling idiot, which gives Dave Bautista motivation to resent him a little bit. And Birdie does not like the fact that basically she's being treated as an object by Miles and she no longer... 
and he no longer values her as the great woman that she is. And I think that's a lot of greatness here, because not only do you have the reasons for why these characters would want to protect Miles, but at the same time, you also establish they do have a lot of reasons to turn on Miles at the same time. I I think there's like two, maybe three things I want to add to that. Yeah, go ahead. Because like, for one, I really love how self-indulgent the shitheads are that like they kind of just allow like not only Blanc who's able to be a little bit more open but mm-hmm. with the fact that he's a detective but for even like Helen to snoop around as well right? yeah. like, I, I think that says a lot about their characters and that's why I really like this mystery that they have over here mm-hmm. and then the second part too is the fact that um I don't know like so you were explaining like even like um earlier when you were revealing like the motivations that same like clear cut like how Birdie at first was like yeah Lionel or sorry uh Miles right he was um like her plaything and now he's using control of her like that was one motivation but because of the new twist that Helen has been snooping around as well she's a she's also able to help um, add on to this information as well because they're basically like both ah, both Blanc and Helen are playing Clue basically. Yeah. Right? And I really I really love that because like um, that plays into perspective I guess. Like again with like the whole I'm gonna bring this up a lot I think just like the fact that this glass onion has so many layers that needs to be peeled. I guess. Yeah. And that's what, because, like, yeah, um, hell, even like way back when, uh, to when Helen was acting as, uh, as Andy tying her shoe. Yeah, that was just Blanc and Andy just like prepping on what their game plan is. Yeah. Basically. Like, I love that so much. And like, you kind of want her to be alive, even though she's, very clearly shown to be like very dead in like very earlier in the movie. I don't know. I really love every bit of this this murder mystery and how it's framed. Yeah. I guess. No, I'd agree with that totally. But then one thing that we establish after we learn all the motivations of why they would want to protect Miles but also turn on him at the same time is that we discovered that the red envelope that was taken uh, that Andy was going to use as blackmail was taken. So it has to be somewhere on the island. So during the dinner scene, obviously, there needs to be a reason for Andy to want to charge out of frame. One thing that we discover is that after Dave Bautista basically tells her, like, she's the loser and that nobody cares about her and that she just came to cause disruption, Andy is able to use this opportunity, or I guess Helen is able to use this opportunity as Andy to storm out angry. When she storms out of the room, obviously, everything happens with, of course, Dave Bautista dying and everything like that and the murder mystery playing out and everything like that. Meanwhile, Helen is running around room to room to each of the four shitheads and ransacking their places trying to find the envelope, only for her to discover that none of the shitheads have the envelope. The only person that would have the envelope is Miles, but she can't get there in time before, obviously, the mysterious killer catches up to her, shoots her in the chest with the magic bullet, and it looks like Helen has fallen over and died from the murderer that not only murdered her, but Dave Batista. But, then it's revealed, plot twist, and here's the big plot twist of the movie, 
Helen was saved basically by her sister in a metaphorical way because she has been keeping this notebook that has a bunch of notes of like her sister's past notes and stuff like that working with Alpha Corporation. And the bullet is able to absorb into it after she's shot. So, of course, Detective Blanc decides to use this opportunity to go, well, the killer thinks you're dead, you know, might as well play it off so that way you have time to go up to the glass onion and see if the envelope is there. So they pour this Jeremy Renner's hot sauce on her to look like fake blood and Detective Blanc takes some of the hot sauce and puts them around his eyes, but of course it burns terribly because it's fucking hot sauce and of course detective blanc plays it off as if he's sad that andy has died and he goes in and gathers everybody for the big reveal and this is what i love about this entire sequence we finally get to see it play out and basically the entire time blanc is basically distracting until helen comes down the stairs with the envelope and he starts going into this monologue as he reveals everything about how it's all about perspective and everything and about how miles braun uses words like embreviate that aren't real words and he doesn't write his own murder mysteries he doesn't create his own boxes. He's not responsible for most of his own technology. So at the end of the day, Detective Blunkton concludes, Miles Braun is just a straight up idiot. <laughs> and he starts grilling into him a little bit. And you can tell Edward Norton doesn't like the fact. And once Helen comes down the stairs with the envelope and everything, he starts to reveal the entire plot of everything that's happened. It looks like, of course, that... Um, Miles Braun is not going to be able to get out of the situation. But one thing that I love about Detective Blanc is as he goes through the murder mystery itself, he simply cannot figure out a way to get circumstantial evidence against Miles Braun. Now, would you like me to talk out the entire reveal of the mystery or would you like to reveal the mystery yourself? I can I can try. <laughs> OK, well, if you'd like to try, go ahead. I'm just trying to take water breaks right now. No, no, of course, of course. So, yeah, I can try taking the reins because I really... Love this weird, like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it because, like, I just like how Blanc didn't really have an intention originally to, like, piece out, like, who the real murder victim was or yeah. who, the, who the real murderer was, right? Yeah. Because I was still on the point of the politician being the murderer, like, somehow, because I'm pretty sure, because I have a really small brain, in my opinion. I don't I I really love murder mysteries but like I just like seeing them unfold and having it make sense yeah by it being like being explained to me mm-hmm. so just seeing Blanc just like stumble his way to um to like reveal who the murderer was was kind of hilarious to me at first but then it's kind of re- because like he starts to piece it out it, it's as you said like he's making up his own words he's like not really like he's like very egotistical as well and then he starts piecing it as like helen is finding the envelope upstairs miles was the person all along apparently right and that wait is, is that how it goes right yeah doesn't he yeah, like right. piece that together because he's he's an idiot like yeah. he has people do stuff for him like how he had um that one author write up his own murder mystery. So he had Blanc tell him how to do the thing. He has a gun on the table, he shuts off all the lights, and he shoots Andy when it's all dark. Like, that's genius. But I don't know, like, I was so dead set on the fact that even though Miles is very much an asshole, I was very much expecting, like, the politician to be, like, the person that picked up the gun. Because I was very sure that it was like when he bumped into her when she bumped into uh duke that uh she picked up the gun there 
But no, I was wrong. Because maybe it was like how he was um just describing it. Because even like Blanc is like Miles told us that uh that he placed his cup somewhere else, but it was actually Miles giving Duke his cup. And it wasn't even poison either. It was just due to the fact that we even established earlier that Duke doesn't dance with pineapple. He's allergic to pineapple. Miles put pineapple juice inside his own drink, gave it to Duke, and made him kill himself on accident. Uh, I... There's probably more to it that I'm, like, missing. I guess, Bacon, is there anything that I'm missing? I... Uh, you're know. not missing a whole lot. Basically, I'll give the the motivation as to why Miles committed the murder. So um, the reason Miles Braun murdered Andy is simply because Andy was going to reveal to the world that she was the original creator of Alpha through the original napkin, which was in the envelope. And of course, this leads Miles to figure this out because the email is sent to the four shitheads and then Lionel faxes the email to... Um, uh, Miles Braun. So, of course, Miles goes to the house of Andy, puts sleeping pills in her coffee, puts her in the car, turns on the car with the exhaust, and basically makes her die in her sleep. Then, as uh, Miles is leaving her house, he goes by Dave Batista, who's on the bike, who sees him leave Andy's house while everybody else shows up trying to figure out what's going on with Andy. Of course, this gives Dave Batista blackmail to use against him because obviously he knows now that Miles was the one that murdered Andy. But this is what causes, of course, Miles to poison, or not really poison, but put pineapple juice in the drink and hand it to uh, Dave Batista, which causes him to fall over and die because he is allergic to it. One thing that I love about how all of this plays out is it's very interesting intricate and easily miles braun should be caught and taken to prison because of it because the envelope is in the possession of helen she shows it off to him but miles braun being the sneaky asshole that he is has a hidden lighter underneath that he uses to burn up the napkin and the piece of evidence and goes on about how well everything you're talking about is circumstantial with no real evidence you know what are you going to present to the cops because it's just going to be your word against mine and how do you think that's going to go and of course, Helen's like, well, Blanc, that can't be it. There's a way to bring him down, right? And Blanc goes, no, it's very much true. Without any type of real evidence, you know, Miles Braun can't be defeated here. And of course, you know, Miles sits on his high horse. Blanc is forced to walk out of the scene because his jurisdiction ends here. But he looks at Helen and goes, but let me give you a reminder of like why your sister left in the first place. And he hands her a drink and puts something in her hand. And we get a scene that I'm not going to lie, I'm 50-50 on. Because one, I understand what's going for. I think it's very powerful and everything like that. But I also think it's a little overly goofy, gets a little over the top, and it kind of takes away from some of the simplicity a little bit that these films kind of had because it was more or less reliant on, like, the detective solves the mystery and then the villain kind of falls flat on his face. Kind of like the first Knives Out. Chris Evans literally falls flat on his face with a dull knife that he can't use to kill Marta. And, of course, he's foiled. But this one goes for a bit of a more off-the-rails approach a little bit to its ending, which I'm still kind of debating if I'm a fan of or not. But basically, Andy goes around, or not Andy, Helen goes around and destroys all the priceless artifacts that are inside uh, Miles's house, and then everybody else starts to join in and destroy things, and Andy then creates a big fire in the middle of the house and ends up using the Hindenburg theory with the hydrogen uh, fuel throws the hydrogen into the fire, which sucks up into the methane that is in the house atmosphere, and it blows up the entire glass onion, basically. Like I said, I understand what it's trying to do here. I get that it's trying to be more extravagant and bigger than the original Knives Out, but I was just not that big a fan of it to begin with. 
But the biggest reason that she did all of this is because the Mona Lisa, the priceless piece of artwork, can go up in flames easily. And Edward Norton sees that and tries to stop Helen from doing it while the song Mona Lisa by Nat King Cole plays. Of course, Helen gets over to the protective glass case, brings it down, and the fire consumes the Mona Lisa as Edward Norton stares into its eyes and creates a face of anger that is very similar to the uh, famous painting that is the screen, which I think was a really good comparison and everything like that. But I understand why the scene played the way out it did. I get what it was trying to go for. But to me personally, it was just a little too goofy. Jesus Christ. (laughs) What? Like, no, it's like that entire third act, like the moment, like I realized Miles was the murderer all along and like, because, yeah, because I forgot to mention, too, not only were we f- trying to find, figure out the uh, the murder of, my, like, the the person that was attempting to murder Miles, we were also trying to figure out who was trying to kill Andy, right? Because, like, the, she's, like, the real victim yeah. here, right? And then on top of that, well, on, once we figure it out, uh, it is Miles, he burns the only piece of evidence that can actually put him under because because of the shitheads uh they wouldn't really want to tell the truth either right because like they're still very much under control of miles braun just like how elon musk kind of has like this big control over twitter like yeah. I, i'm pretty sure that's what the like why this movie is also like very well timed as well that's what yeah. a friend of mine pointed that out to me uh shout out to kai by the way uh yeah they're the ones that uh pointed that out to me personally yeah uh but yeah no i just really love how explosive this movie this movie is and that's like one that's like again glass onion and knives out i want to say that they're two completely different types of movies but i can see why i can see why um knives outs uh third like how it plays out in the end is a little bit more effective than the third act here because i was just more stressed out here i guess right and if anything i there there is one more aspect i want to tackle i think knives out is better than in here but we'll say it in a sec because it it plays that just it's all about like how the villain this time is one one main villain, it seems like, that gets his comeuppance. But yeah, you can take it away for a sec. Because yeah, we're so nearing after, the end, basically. Yeah, so after the house is completely destroyed, Miles Braun then throws a tantrum, obviously, and goes on about how it accomplished nothing. And then Helen basically tells him to his face, your renewable energy source just burnt up the world's most famous painting, you dumbass. You basically ruined because good luck launching clear. Nobody's going to want the product. And you destroyed one of France's biggest pieces of artwork, which basically is a federal crime, if you think about it, and an international crime, if you will. And so Miles Braun kind of sits there and goes, well, don't worry. I have my gang here. We're going to figure it out. You're nothing to me. And then the gang all slowly starts to turn on Miles one by one once they realize he no longer has power and influence over them. Catherine Hahn puts up her hand and goes, gosh, now that you mention it, I saw him burn the napkin. And Leslie Odom Jr. as Lionel goes, and I saw him take Duke's gun. And then Bertie goes, yeah, and I saw him, uh, what was it, plant evidence or whatever, something like that. But basically, they all turn on Lionel, or not turn on Lionel, they all turn on Miles. And Miles sits Mm -hmm. down on the steps and goes, oh, 
you shitheads, basically. And Helen independently walks out to the end of the dock where Detective Blanc is sitting there in his drip. The police boats are coming up to basically rescue and arrest Miles, it looks like. And all Detective Blanc has to say is, so, did you get the son of a bitch? And she goes, yeah. And he goes, well, are you ready to go home? And the last shot we get is a zoom in on the face of Janelle Monet as she stands or as she stares independently out into the bay, kind of resembling the Mona Lisa a little bit with the way that it's framed. And then the movie ends. And I love everything about this. I love the comeuppance we get for Miles. I love how it just basically ends in this basically like isn't the hero at the end of the day. It's actually the character that we've established as uh, kind of the semi hero of the movie. And I love everything about that and the way this movie plays out. So. And yeah, that is basically the end of the movie. Really good. So, okay. Here comes my, like, me being mean to this movie, I guess. Okay. <laughs> I really like the villains in Knives Out. Right? Yeah. Because, like, even though it is Ransom that is, like, the murderer, each, each of the family members, they're all assholes, and they don't really get redeemed in the end. Yeah. Right. Like they still lose the inheritance. Marta still gets to look down on them because they're all a bunch of assholes. Like, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis does figure out that his husband is cheating on him, on her. Because, and that scene's also awesome too. Like the fact that she like sucker punches him off screen. Like, I I think that's a like really cool. But like, still, they've all taken advantage of Marta and Harlan. Right. I personally really like how they're like objectively like bad. They're all bad. Right. But then yeah. here with uh the like the trio or not trio, but like the main group of friends in uh, like the shitheads. We'll call them the shitheads because that's what they are. They don't really get the same come up and that I kind of would have preferred. Because, yeah, no, I definitely, even though Birdie, we all love her, like, as established, she's, I don't know, like, the fact that she still endorsed a sweatshop, I, I don't know, it, it doesn't, it didn't really rub me the right way. And, th- and just the fact that they all collectively ruined Andy's career, even though she was clearly correct, and uh, it just gave miles the opportunity to kill her i don't know i it didn't rub me the right way i didn't really think they needed to be redeemed that's like the one reason why it didn't rub me the right way i think but overall i do think this is a lot more explosive than the first knives out and again they're like two different types of stories that i kind of respect but uh first before I go into more like closing thoughts, what what do you think? No, I completely get where you're coming from on that. Because um, if you let, read my letterbox review on this, one thing that I said is I thought the characters of this movie were more like shallow and one note versus what we got in the original Knives Out. Because the original Knives Out, that whole cast has like clear defined character traits and you understand like each of the character motivations and stuff like that. And it's really well written. Whereas in this one, they like all kind of play into their one personality trait for me a little bit. And then at the ending, I'm like, oh, well, they all turned on Miles, but, like, 
they're still kind of assholes in a way. And I don't know if I kind of love the fact that they all get redeemed at the end of the day, because like, like you said, Birdie endorses the sweatshop and Lionel and Claire were literally going to sign on to this clear product, you know, full well knowing it was dangerous. And then Dave Batista basically who died and didn't really get redeemed anyways. Like what were we supposed to take away? Like, Oh, good that Dave Batista got avenged for being uh, killed when like he wasn't a great person himself. So like, I kind of see the moral dilemma where you're coming from. And I think that's what makes the ending so powerful because like, despite the fact that they all turn on miles there's still a chance that like they would all go under for being like a part of his little crew if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and again like i personally still like the fact that these assholes do get the jump on elon musk that (laughs) i think that's really funny uh and yeah i i think that duke dying was pretty necessary like it was I also just really find it funny because, like, yeah, it's Duke. Andrew Tate is now dead. Awesome. Raposo. <laughs> Classic Tate L. Yeah. I don't know. I really love this movie, though. This is probably in my, like, top ten for this year so far. Yeah, Personally. I think... I think this will easily make my top 10. Uh, the original Lives Out did because of how well-crafted it was. So I expect this one, too. Um, just overall, like, this is a really solid murder mystery. Like, you don't get a lot of great mystery movies nowadays. Like, if you saw Death on the Nile, I apologize. That um, This <laughs> is a way better movie than that. Though, I heard that the murder mystery renaissance has been technically thriving with Death on the Nile being on that list. Like, they're not good ones. Like, I, I've seen, like, my handful of murder mysteries as well. Like, uh, earlier this year, there was, like, See How They Run. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Hamm reprised a character of Chevy Chase called um, Confess Fletch. Yeah, I don't really think you would consider Batman to be a, like, the Batman to be a murder mystery, would you? Not really. I wouldn't consider it. There's a murder mystery in it, but I wouldn't consider it a true murder mystery. That, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but like, yeah, no, there, I'd say that there's like a, like, I can see why people consider this to be a, like a detective renaissance, like a murder mystery renaissance. And unfortunately, Death on the Nile is on that list. I can't speak for that movie yet. I haven't seen it. Uh, <laughs> would you recommend? I would I'll not probably... recommend Death on the Nile because it has that piece of shit army hammer in it, but that's besides the point. Okay, that's fair. But uh, it's also just due to the fact that like Glass Onion is also here as well, that so too. I can I can understand why that sentiment is there in the first place too. But yeah. I don't know, I I really like what Ryan Johnson has been doing with this murder mystery franchise. I hope we get more of these. They're just so much fun, and I don't know, they're all like really well placed. And like, and they're really good at like social commentary and such. Yeah, very, very much true with that. But uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna give this one an eight out of ten, which I think was the same score that I gave the original Knives Out. But I'd say it's slightly—I uh, guess I don't know. I'd say it's maybe slightly higher than the original, but I also like the original's characters a lot more. So I don't know. I'm not gonna compare these two because one of them is a who done it, and I would argue that this one is a how they done it rather than a who done it. That's a good way to put it, actually, because <laughs> I I kind of just I, keep in mind uh, I'm kind of a shill for these ones. I I think they're both nines for me. 
That's like, despite despite both of their flaws. Like I, I was really mean to the finale of it, kind of, but like it's still I, I still love it. I like the aesthetic, the whole murder mystery. Like it's very new to me, I guess. Like and it's like what got me into like that type of movie. Yeah. I guess. That type of movie genre. Like, I don't know. I I really like these main characters as well. Like, even though, like, Glass Onions, as you said, feels, like, a little bit more one note, I just, I don't know. I really like this franchise, and I hope we get, like, 30 more of these. Not not literally, <laughs> but, like, I don't know. It, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I think Netflix did sign this series on for a couple movies because of how successful the first one was. So we are going to get more of these. I think it's just going to be, like, Expect him every three years, maybe, or something like that. Because Ryan Johnson likes to take his time as a filmmaker. And who knows, you know, maybe he'll, like, take a break for a little bit with Craig. Like, Craig will want to go off and do other projects, and so will Ryan. And then they'll come back when, like, Craig's in his 60s or something, and Ben Blanc's back to doing this stuff again. But, you know, um, I, I can't wait to see where this franchise goes going forward. I've liked both entries so far. I expect the third to be very good. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see what Detective Ben Blanc is up to next. Very much so. Uh, the bizarre adventures of a gay detective. Yeah. Uh, so, do you have any final notes that you'd like to say before we uh, sign off here today? Uh, not exactly. I'm just never going to go to Barbary Street ever again. <laughs> Don't ever go to Michigan. Never go there. That because, like, I'm pretty sure, like, a basement in Detroit is like the equivalent to like just stepping foot in ohio no 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 are you paul dano now (laughs) this is not how it's supposed to go um (laughs) but yeah that'll do it for this edition of hayden's entertainment hour um there are a couple movies coming out next month there's there's a violent santa claus one there's the big movie avatar 2 there's the last person boots yeah (laughs) um but there are going to be a couple movies coming out next month and then as a lot of people know, at the end of the year, I will be doing my top 10 best and worst movies of 2022. And as I have encouraged anybody that would like to be a part of this process or would like to submit me their uh, top 10 best and worst of 2022, reach out to me in DMs for how that works. I don't know if I'm going to have people send me audio files or if I'll record with everybody that wants to do their top 10 best and worst, but we're going to figure it out. We still got a whole month to get through. Thank you once again, Fahrenheit, for coming on and talking about this movie with me. I hopefully will see you again towards the end of the year for something else. I kind of want to talk about the Fablemans, like some other time. Obviously, is that in Ohio yet? Uh, last I checked, it is, but I think the uh, showings for it are dropping. So I'm gonna have to hope that I see it fast because it doesn't look like it's gonna be in theaters very fast in Ohio. Because, like, I don't know. Because if it wasn't, we're kind of forever. Because, uh, like, quick little insight. Um, apparently, you can't watch Disney movies before, like, imp- because. Uh, for move for movie workers like at movie theaters, right? Yeah. Uh, you can't really. Or sorry, you have to watch movies at midnight on Wednesday midnight to test the movie, right? Yeah. But you can't really do that for Disney movies. So, uh, for Wakanda Forever, I couldn't see that either. And oh, I was, wow. yeah, and I kind of wanted to see the Fablemans. Like at midnight, but I couldn't, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. That was very sad. 
but uh because it was my 21st birthday basically uh very recently but um i on the release night of the fablemans so i kind of wanted to check that out but man that mo that movie's for another story basically i'm not going to waste any more time but yeah yeah well, I guess that'll do it for this edition of uh, Hayden's Entertainment Hour. We shall see you guys next time. Mm.